In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In this second meditation on Good Friday, we continue our prayer with our Lord in His Passion. And by doing this, we're trying to accompany Him in His suffering. We're trying to comfort Him with our effort to pray. We try to comfort and console Him today with our effort to pray and also to deny ourselves to be mortified on Good Friday. In the first meditation we did today earlier, we covered the first three words of our Lord on the cross. And now we move to consider the remaining four words. The fourth word, the fourth phrase, is very moving and very mysterious. Jesus cries out from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus here is quoting the opening of one of the Psalms, of Psalm 22. These are the first two verses of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Some people call this phrase the word of desolation. Desolation. Not only is Jesus suffering physically, not only is he suffering emotionally and morally because he's hurt by our sins, not only is he hurt especially by the betrayal of Judas, the betrayal of Peter the night before, the fact that most of the apostles and disciples have abandoned him. He's mostly alone on the cross, except for Our Lady and St. John and a couple other, the holy women. Not only is he hurt by all that betrayal and all of that physical suffering, but on top of all this, there's something even worse. There's something even harder for him to bear. Jesus feels as though his Father God has abandoned him. He experiences a separation from the Father, a distance from his Father God. Now we know that God the Father can never actually abandon God the Son. This is something that we can call metaphysically impossible. If God the Father actually abandoned God the Son, it would mean that he would stop loving God the Son. And if God the Father stopped loving God the Son... God would cease to exist, which is impossible. So God the Son isn't actually abandoned by God the Father. What happens here, rather, is that Jesus expresses in these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His experience, his experience through his humanity of what it's like 
to be a sinner, what it's like to be someone who has rejected God. He experiences the ultimate consequences even of unrepentant sin, which is being permanently cut off from God, removed from God's love. And since he is really innocent, since he has not committed any sin, since he's so good, this experience causes him to cry out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why do you feel far from me, God? I know I haven't sinned. Why are you distant? There's a verse in, in St. Paul which helps us to understand this. In writing to the Corinthians, St. Paul is explaining and speaking of our redemption in Christ, how Christ redeems us from sin. And St. Paul says, For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how St. Paul describes our salvation, that God the Father made God the Son to be sin who knew no sin. What a powerful way of expressing what Jesus experiences. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He becomes sin. And sin, of course, is precisely the rejection of God. Being voluntarily distant from God. It's wanting to abandon God. It's wanting to be abandoned by God. We find a similar description in St. Peter, in his second letter, St. Peter says of our Lord, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He himself bore our sins. And the prophet Isaiah, prophesying our redemption in Christ, foreseeing it, Isaiah wrote, Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. He has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. And what greater disease do we have than sin? What greater infirmity do we have but precisely being enemies of God? And so, Lord, in your passion, in his passion, our Lord doesn't just kind of like get punished externally in our place. He doesn't just suffer um, the consequences that we should suffer. He actually enters into the experience of being a sinner. He becomes sin for our sake. But of course, without actually deserving it, while being innocent. And that results in this kind of incredible, exquisite torture for him. He knows how good he is. He knows how much he doesn't deserve this. He hates sin. He hates evil because he's God. And yet in his humanity, he lets himself feel as if he were guilty, as if he were a sinner. He bore our infirmities, carried our diseases. St. John Henry Newman, in a beautiful sermon on, on 
what he calls our Lord's mental sufferings. St. John Henry Newman says that our Lord's agony in the garden consisted primarily in this, right, in this experience of, of being identified with sin. That that pain that he experienced the night before the Passion, that agony, was this experience of, of, of feeling abandoned by God because he's a sinner. This is Newman's description of our Lord in his agony. There he knelt, motionless and still, while the vile and horrible fiend clad his spirit in a robe steeped in all that is hateful and heinous in human crime, which clung, cl- which clung close around his heart and filled his conscience and found its way into every sense and pore of his mind and spread over him a moral leprosy till he almost felt himself to be that which he never could be and which his foe would fain have made him. Right? He almost felt himself to be that which he could never be, an enemy of God, and which the devil would, would, would have made him. Right? The devil wants Jesus to, to reject God. The devil, Jesus, the devil wants Jesus to join him in his rebellion against God. Oh, the horror when he looked and did not know himself and felt as a foul and loathsome sinner. From his vivid perception of that mass of corruption which poured over his head and ran down even to the skirts of his garments. Oh, the distraction, when he found his eyes and hands and feet and lips and heart, as if the members of the evil one and not of God. Are these the hands of the Immaculate Lamb of God, once innocent, but now red with 10,000 barbarous deeds of blood? Are these his lips, not uttering prayer and praise and holy blessing, but as if defiled with oaths and blasphemies and doctrines of devils? Or his eyes, profaned as they are by all the evil visions and idolatrous fascinations for which men have abandoned their adorable creator? And his ears, they ring with the sounds of revelry and of strife, and his heart is frozen with avarice and cruelty and unbelief, and his very memory is laden with every sin which has been committed since the fall and all the regions of the earth, with the pride of the old giants and the lusts of the five cities and the obduracy of Egypt and the ambition of Babel and the unthankfulness and scorn of Israel. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? So Jesus in his passion becoming sin and takes on himself and feels and sees and experiences as if his own all this evil, all this rejection of God. And since he's so good and innocent, this causes this incredible anguish, this incredible sense of doubt. Lord, thank you for going through that for us. Thank you for taking our place. Thank you for redeeming us in this way. We move on now to the fifth word from the cross. We find this in the Gospel of John. John writes, After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they, did, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. 
I thirst. The saints have all seen in this phrase much more than a desire for water, desire for drink. Much more than physical thirst, Jesus thirsts for souls, they tell us. He thirsts, he desires to save us, to love us. Physical thirst, however, gives us some idea, right, of what Jesus is experiencing spiritually, psychologically. Think of the times that you've been really thirsty. Maybe it was a hot day and you're playing sports outside or out exercising. Maybe you went on a long hike and you forgot to bring water. And that thirst increases. Right? It becomes this intense desire to drink. It almost becomes an obsession when it gets real bad. It's the only thing you can think about is slaking the thirst, drinking. I've often wondered that thirst is the only thing that can make Gatorade taste good. It makes it taste great, right? If you drink Gatorade when you're not thirsty, it's kind of kind of nasty. I thirst. St. Jose Maria and Mother Teresa, two great saints, both say when Jesus says he thirsts, he's talking about our love. He thirsts for our love. He yearns for our love. He desires our love and our affection. You thirst, Lord, for our response to your goodness. You thirst for our Christian life. There's a beautiful letter from Mother Teresa to her daughters, the Missionaries of Charity, where she develops this theme, the meaning of this phrase of Jesus on the cross, I thirst. In every one of their chapels, the, mission, the Missionaries of Charity, the very simple setup they have, a simple tabernacle and a crucifix, and then on the wall next to the crucifix, they have just those two words, I thirst. This is Mother Teresa writing to her spiritual daughters. He thirsts for you. He loves you always, even when you don't feel worthy. When not accepted by others, even by yourself sometimes, He is the one who always accepts you. My children, you don't have to be different for Jesus to love you. Jesus himself must be the one to say to you, I thirst. Jesus himself must be the one to say to you, I thirst. Hear your own name, not just once, every day. If you listen with your heart, you will hear, you will understand. Why does Jesus say, I thirst? What does it mean? Something so hard to explain in words. If you remember anything from Mother's letter, remember this. I thirst is something much deeper than Jesus just saying, I love you. Until you know deep inside that Jesus thirsts for you, you can't begin to know who he wants to be for you or who he wants you to be for him. I thirst. It shows us in Mother Teresa's vision of things, it shows us how much we mean to God who he wants to be for us, and who he wants us to be for him. I thirst. And how can we experience this, Lord? How can we experience your love for us? How can we experience this thirst that God has for us? Well, an essential part of it is our prayer life. Every day we have to put ourselves 
in the presence of God and stay there. Every day we have to consider slowly the truth that He loves us, that He's our loving Father. Like Mother Teresa says, every day we have to hear Him say that He loves us, hear Him say our name, and say, I thirst, I thirst for you. I thirst for you, I love you that much. So Lord, help me to find time every day to be in your presence, to rest in your care for me, to return, to return love for love. As St. Josemaria used to say, love is repaid with love. Love is repaid with love. And so many times in our prayer, you know, what am I supposed to do? I'm bored, I'm tired, I'm this, I'm that. Tell God that you love him. And if you don't feel like you love him, tell God that you don't love him. There was a saint who used that as an aspiration. I don't love you, Lord. But by saying, I don't love you, Lord, he was saying, I want to love you. And so in a way, I already do. I love you, Lord, or I don't love you, Lord. Great exercises for our soul in times of prayer. The sixth word of Jesus on the cross, our next word, comes right after the fifth word. We return to St. John's Gospel. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. This is the sixth word. It is finished. Or, it is accomplished. What is finished? What is accomplished? Well, the work of redemption. The work of salvation. The mission that Jesus has come to carry out has been successful. It's been successfully accomplished. We thank you, Lord, on this Good Friday for all that you suffered for us to fulfill this mission. We ask you, Lord, for a special grace to see our own sufferings in the same way, in the same way that you saw yours, as opportunities to help others, as opportunities to save others. And this is the way that Jesus wants us to see our sufferings as opportunities to follow him, as opportunities to be like him on the cross. We hear what he said earlier in the gospel. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Lord, give me the courage and the generosity and the trust I need to do this. Lord, help me to see the challenges of my life with the spirit of wanting to be like you, wanting to help you redeem the world. St. Paul thinks of it in this way, that the sufferings that he goes through in his body and in his, in his soul are ways of kind of continuing the, continuing the redemption, continuing to help Christ redeem the church and help the church. St. Paul says, I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And so St. Paul sees like his own suffering and Christ's suffering as kind of like one thing. This is the way the idea of being a co-redeemer comes. That Christians are, are part of the body of Christ where alter Christus, ipse Christus. Another Christ, Christ himself, as St. Josemaria liked to say. And so our sufferings aren't just our sufferings, right? We can unite them to our Lord's suffering and we make them redemptive. We make them fruitful. 
We can't do this, of course, Lord, without your help. We can't do this without his grace. At the Last Supper, speaking to his apostles, our Lord says, without me you can do nothing. It's part of the discourse in the vine and the branches, right? That without being attached to the, to the vine, the branches can do nothing. And so our Lord says, without me you can do nothing. Well, Lord, if I can't do anything without you, if I can't do anything without you, why should I try to pick up my cross every day and follow you in this heroic way, in this generous way, without your help? I need your help to do this, Lord. We all need your help to do this, Lord. And so in our life, at times, there are challenges that seem very hard, very overwhelming. And yet we know what we should do deep down. And perhaps not so deep down, we know what we should do right up front. It's kind of obvious. But it seems very difficult. It seems almost impossible. And that's precisely the moment to rely on his help more. To to try to do what we're supposed to do, to kind of force ourselves to do what we're supposed to do. But at the same time, relying totally on his help. To make a real effort to push ourselves, but to push ourselves knowing that he, he has to help us and he will help us. This was the attitude of, of St. Therese of Lisieux. Here's, here's another portion from a letter of St. Therese to her sister Celine. My dearest sister, do not let your weakness make you unhappy. When in the morning we feel no courage or strength for the practice of virtue, it is really a grace. It is the time to lay the axe to the root of the tree relying upon Jesus alone. And so many times we can feel like this. We wake up in the morning, we have no desire. We feel like we have no strength or desire to do what we have to do to start the day. And St. Therese says, don't let that make you unhappy. Right? It's, time to, it's time to make real progress in relying on our Lord. If we fall, an act of love will set all right and Jesus smiles. And so it's not a matter of being perfect, right? We might try and and fail. And we start over with an act of love, an act of love sorrow. If we fall, an act of love will set all right, and Jesus smiles. He helps us without seeming to do so, and the tears which sinners cause him to shed are wiped away by our poor, weak love. Love can do all things. The most impossible tasks seem To it easy and sweet. You know well that our Lord does not look so much at the greatness of our actions, nor even at their difficulty, as at the love with which we do them. What then have we to fear? Love can do all things. The most impossible tasks seem to it easy and sweet. That's a lot like something St. Augustine says, that love makes labor light. Love makes labor light. The things that we love to do, even if they're difficult, um, we do them willingly, and and, and, and they, they seem easy in the end. We come now finally to the seventh and last word of Jesus on the cross. We can call this one the word of abandonment or the word of trust. We find it in the Gospel of Luke. 
It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. We know that Jesus doesn't just die on the cross. In dying, he redeems us. We saw, we saw that in the sixth word. It is accomplished. And in dying, Lord, you also make this huge act of trust. In dying, you entrust yourself to your Father. And we saw before that Jesus felt abandoned by the Father because of his having become sin. His having really taken our place as sinners. And we see here something very powerful, that he trusts his Father anyway. He trusts him in spite of the separation that he feels in spite of the agony that he's going through, in spite of the death that he's about to die, that he is dying. And this is a great lesson for us. Because at times it may seem as if God has abandoned us. At times it may seem as if God doesn't love us anymore. At times it may seem as if God doesn't care. This can happen when we lose a loved one. This can happen perhaps to some of us who get seriously ill when we're, when we're still young. We have our whole life ahead of us. This can happen in the face of natural disasters and catastrophes. It can happen in the face of severe economic hardship that comes upon us unexpectedly. This can happen in the face of the pandemic that we're going through right now. Where we can think, where's God? He's abandoned us. He doesn't care. And to have faith, to have faith is to say no to those thoughts, to reject those thoughts, to reject those doubts, to say, in spite of all appearances, I know that God is good. I will trust him even though I don't feel like trusting him. I will trust him even if it's difficult to trust him. I will trust him precisely with my life and perhaps even with my death. And I will trust him with the lives and the deaths of everyone else I love. This is what Jesus does on the cross. And Jesus knows God better than any of us. He knows how good God is. He knows how good the Father is, how loving his plans are. And this is what Jesus says, even though I'm dying, even though I feel far from God, even though I'm suffering this punishment of sinners that I don't deserve, that I don't understand humanly, I will still trust him. And so his last words are words of trust. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. In spite of what... Our Lord is feeling on the cross in His humanity. He knows that the safest place to be is in His Father's hands. He knows that the safest plan is His Father's plan. And so He abandons Himself to God's care. He abandons Himself entirely. 
to God's love. We ask our Lord, Lord, give us some of your trust in the Father. Give us some of your faith in Him. Help us when, when we feel perhaps some doubt creep in that God has abandoned us or doesn't care. Help us to have your response, to reject that, to say, no, it's not true. It's an illusion. It's just a feeling. It's just a thought. Just because I think or feel something doesn't make it true. I know, Lord, because you died on the cross for me, how much God loves me. Pope Francis, in his first encyclical, said this. He said, the greatest proof of the reliability of God's love for us is found in Jesus dying on the cross. The greatest proof of the reliability of his love for us is found today, Good Friday, Jesus dying on the cross. And it proves not just Jesus' love for us, not just the Son's love for us, but the Father's love for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son and gave him up on the cross. We go to Our Lady. Our Lady has that courage, that bravery, that trust in God. Today we see her, we saw her in the earlier meditation, standing at the foot of the cross. Although it cost her so much, she trusted and she turned her pain into love. She turned her suffering into love and trust. So we ask her, Our Lady, Mother of Sorrows, Mother at the foot of the cross, pray for us. Give us your trust in God's plan. Give us the the depth and the breadth of your heart, which loves God and trusts God, no matter what happens. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.